1: Good morning. It's good to see everyone. It's good to be in Sunday school. Amen. I um, counted a huge honor to be the first one uh, back in Sunday school to be able to teach. So I want to say thank you to Pastor and Sister Staten, to Brother Roberts. He is one of my favorite teachers. So you definitely want to come back next week because I'm pretty sure he's teaching next week too. So um, yes, thank you. I feel super honored. Thank you all for being here. I know it's different. Like It feels it feels good, but it still feels a little bit different to be here for Sunday school. Um, but thank you for being here. Um, thank you for seeking after God and wanting to know his word. Um, so this morning, I'm going to dive right in. I text Brother Robertson this morning, and I told him, I was like, I have 17 pages of notes. So y'all are going to get six months <laughs> of nothing, but it's a little bit bigger of a font. He said, that's nothing. He's like, I usually have like 24. So... Well, we're going to try to get through this. Um, so, if we want to turn to our Bibles, Romans chapter sixteen, verse seventeen. When you are there, say Amen. <laughs> Love it, Amen. All over across the building. It's also on the screen. If you did not bring your Bible, the Word of the Lord says, and now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught, what you already know, and stay away from them. So um, Brother Roberts has already prayed, so you can be seated. I'm going to dive right in. On my way back, I went to my parents a couple weeks ago, and on my way there, I was listening to a lesson. um, And has anyone ever heard of Brother Terry Shock? He's a phenomenal teacher. He's one of my favorite teachers. Um, He was telling us, I was listening to him teach a lesson, and he, um, you can turn me down a little bit, Brother Tyler. This seems really hot. I don't want to blow everybody away. Um, He was talking, he started out his lesson, and he was telling a story. When he lived in Louisiana, he would... um, Go, the police. He was, had a really good relationship with the police department, and sometimes they would call him in the middle of the night to do ride-alongs. And one night they called him and they were like, "Hey, uh, Mr. Shock, we are going to be doing a drug bust tonight, and if you want to ride along, you know, this is what time we're leaving. You know, da 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 da." And he was like, "Yeah, for sure." So he went to the police department and he got in the vehicle. And the SWAT team they went to this house, which was a major drug house in the area, and. He said when they got there, he didn't know what to expect. He said, but when he got there, the entire SWAT's team just, they were quiet. They didn't announce their presence, but they all got out of the vehicles and surrounded the house. And when the captain, when the director gave the signal, they all started just pounding on the house, on the outside of the house, yelling, pounding, just making all kinds of noise. And Brother Shock was like, okay, this was not what I had expected. And so he asked the officer, he's like, why did they do that? Why do you do it that way? He said, because they're not expecting us. He said, and when we surround the house and we begin pounding on the house, it creates chaos inside the house. And so, therefore, we don't have to break in. They're going to open the door for us. And when he's, he was talking about it, and it just, he was saying, that is exactly where we are as the church. The enemy has literally surrounded the church and it's pounding on the outside of the church trying to get in. The enemy wants in here. He's already out there. He's the prince of the air. He has power and authority out there, but he doesn't have power and dominion in here and he wants in, but the only way he can get in is if we let him. So this morning I want to teach the title of my lesson this morning is simply don't open the door. We are in this world, but we're not of it, right? We are here, we, we live and breathe, we work, We all of those things. And the enemy has surrounded us. So you may ask, okay, open the door to what? What, what exactly? I was reading an article and it said, um, it was asking pastors different things. And right now we know that it's been a crazy six, seven months. And when, so pastors, when they were asked, what is the most significant struggle in this moment? Pastors pointed to the disunity in their congregation. That is the greatest struggle that a lot of pastors are facing right now. The spirit of division we know is running rampant in the world, trying to divide people, trying to divide families. And it wants to get in the house of God. It wants to get him in among the people of God. But we cannot open the door to that spirit. We have to keep it closed. Um, So has anyone ever heard the phrase uh, to divide and conquer? It's a pretty familiar phrase. In my mind, when I say divide and conquer, I've always thought of it as kind of more of a positive standpoint. Like, all right, you go do this, I'll go do this, and we're gonna accomplish more quicker. You know, kind of maybe more of like a delegate and conquer type thing. But if we look to the original meaning of divide and conquer, it is actually not positive. It means Centuries ago, when it was first um, begun, it was mean, means to gain and maintain power by breaking up groups into smaller groups. Okay, that's not bad. But the next part of it, it says to make them less powerful groups. Conquerors will do whatever it takes to win. They don't care. And they don't care. All they want to do is win. They have no thought about the future all they're focused on is right now and this is what I want to do first Peter 5 8 tells us warns us be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion he's walking around and he's seeking whom he may devour so this morning I would just want to take a couple looks at four areas that the spirit of division tries to come into the church I want to preface this lesson because I know when you talk about unity and disunity and things like that, some people, like I know even myself in my flesh, I automatically think like, okay, are they talking about me? Well, first of all, I'm, I have no person in mind when I talk, when I say these things, I have no situation, no circumstance. I don't even know anything. So I want to preface it by that. Secondly, as I prepared this lesson, I realized that I have battled these four areas over the last, not even the last seven months, but my entire walk with the Lord, I have battled these four areas, even more so the last seven months. So maybe I'm talking to myself this morning, So, I hope, but I hope it's helpful for you as well. So the four areas is the first one is us and our families. The second one is us and us. The third one is us and our shepherd. And the fourth one is us and God. The first place that the enemy tries to come in, sometimes whether we really want to believe it or not, is in our families. The enemy wants to destroy our families. Has anyone's family been under attack the last few months? My family I, and I, I know. I know some situations. You know, the enemy has attacked our families. I have a cousin who called me a couple months ago, and she was so distraught, asking me to pray for her family. She has um, her children. Like they have a close relationship. They're very close together, and but they have differing opinions. Her and one of her child children have a differing opinion about something that's prevalent in our society right now. They know it's a difference, and they've chosen to not make it an issue. Anybody can relate with that? You have differing opinions, and you just choose. It's like you don't talk about it. So for whatever reason, one day that topic came up, and it released so much anger in her child towards her and her husband, and it just wreaked havoc through them and she called me she was so distraught because she was it had gotten to it had escalated to the point where they were threatening to keep their grandchildren away from them and it really it was a it's a major difference but it wasn't something that would cause that but the enemy wanted to separate that she was beside herself and so um what's crazy even is that this issue had arisen through a text message through a text message, something that was about to divide and separate this family through a mere text message. One, the enemy knows that content, like the tone, that really, that cannot be read through text message. So, of course, he's going to use that to try to bring division in families, you know, And, and he did. But... The underlying issue with this situation is that my cousin is. She is a Christian woman. She's faithful to God. She serves God. And while her son was raised in the church, he believes in God. He's not living for the Lord right now, so it really came was coming down to a difference in righteousness. You know, she was standing for righteousness and what the Lord was saying, and he was going with what the world was saying. So her viewpoint was from righteousness. So if you really want to know if there's a spirit of division at work in your family, just stand up for righteousness. And I promise you, you will notice it very, very quickly. Um, Biblically, we can look at Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. He says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus' own words here, he was telling us that following Christ can and will divide you from your family if they're unbelievers. So he even said again in Matthew 10, 36, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. God's sheep, God's people are scattered. We, we can see that. There's so many things, not only amongst the nations, but also among families. The people of God are scattered. So wait a second. You were, I thought we were talking about division being a bad thing, Sister Jessica. Well, it is. As Christians, as Christian believers, we're not meant to hate our family. We, or anyone for that matter, but we're to love them. We are to, um, to reach out to them. I read somewhere that a family divided is the devil's playground. When a family is divided against each other, if we let him, he can come in and just wreak havoc. He can just come in and play all day long. But it doesn't have to be that way. Scripture tells us to love our enemies, which another word for there is unbelievers, which ultimately might be your own family members. Anybody have family members who are unbelievers? Sometimes it feels like they're kind of the enemy. Yeah, I felt that. We must pray for them to see the truth. And remember that families matter to God. Families were created by God. That's why there are so few things that are more painful than unresolved family conflict. It can rip your heart out, rip you apart. It can turn a happy home into a war zone. And that's what the enemy wants. Issues such as, you know, whose turn it is to take out the trash is bothersome. That's annoying. But a relatively minor issue. It can be resolved pretty quickly, but other issues present a greater challenge. The son who disowns his Christian upbringing, the mother-in-law whose abuse and manipulation threatens to destroy a marriage, and the father who abuses his children. Those are big issues. They're real, and sadly, they do occur in Christian homes. They may have even occurred in some of your homes and some of your families. And while some situations are resolved over time, they can go on for months, even years. And the closeness of family relationships, it makes managing that conflict difficult because you're close to them. You don't want to hurt them. You want to be, they're your family. You know, I've always said, like at the end of the day, if I'm on my deathbed, I know my family are the ones that's going to be there with me. So I don't, When there's conflict, I don't want it to be there. I want that to be restored. So I was reading about um, family conflict and things like that, and I was, um, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. James Dobson. He is a family Christian psychologist, uh, very popular. He has lots of books, lots of seminars. He's really a brilliant Christian man. So there are some guidelines that he gave us to keep in mind. Number one is to draw appropriate boundaries. Appropriate boundaries are biblical, And they enable us to set limits while still loving the other person. It's okay to set boundaries. Boundaries, it's like property lines around your house. This is my property. That's not my property. This is my family. This is what we value. This is what we are good at. This is what we believe. This is what we need. And that's not us. Set those boundaries. That's okay. Good boundaries will, in fact, help you to care for other people because you've got that stable foundation. You're not going to be wishy-washy all over the place. You've got that foundation. This is who we are. This is what we believe. So that, that spirit or that offense, that conflict, it's not going to be able to enter into our house. Be real with yourself. Sometimes it's hard to be real with ourselves and really see, identify the areas in our families that are causing conflict, causing that division, busyness, time stealers, differences in opinion. Draw those boundaries around your family and protect them. I promise you no one else will. No one else is going to draw boundaries around your family. It's up to you. It's our responsibility to protect our families. Number two when dealing with family conflict is appeal to that relationship. When faced with conflict, affirm the relationship. Do all that you can to preserve it. You can love someone without condoning their behavior, right? things that are happening you've got to remember they are a result of a broken and a sinful humanity living in a broken and sinful world it's not your family member but it's the spirits in this world that are coming against them jude 123 says to rescue by snatching them from the flames of judgment show mercy and do so with great caution you hate the sin that contaminate their lives, but you're still reaching in trying to save them. You're still trying to preserve that relationship. Three, and finally, is to recognize your limits and relinquish the results to God. Ultimately, they're in his hands. Sometimes people walk away. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they say, you know, it's not us that is making the decision. Sometimes it's the sin in their life that causes that to that distinction that causes that separation, but we've got to relinquish that to God, continue loving them. The Bible tells us to be at peace with all men. That's, that's what we're to do. And when we've done all we can do to restore the relationship, we just release it to God. We need our families to be strong and healthy. We need him to do that. 2 Timothy 1.12, it says he is able to guard what you have entrusted to him. God is able to guard your family, but you've got to trust him with them. You've got to relinquish that control and say, okay, God, I've done all I can do. You're in control of my family. God, you guard my family, and he will. But if we don't commit our family to him, then he's not going to guard them. Again, it comes back to it's our responsibility to relinquish that. The second place that the enemy will try to bring division is between us and us. Look at your neighbor and say, you're us. <laughs> Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31 says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon. When you, the Lord says your name twice, you know he's serious. He says, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you, that he may separate, that he may scatter you. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fails not, and when you are converted, you will strengthen your brethren. So back to the phrase divide and conquer. Um, I looked it up, you know, Webster's Dictionary. And it says, to make a group of people disagree and fight with one another so that they will not join together against one. The spirit of division seeks to keep us away from each other, and it keeps wants us to fight. That's what the spirit of division wants to do. Why? Why would Satan use division? Like, okay, why? Well, because when we're separate, there is a weakening of the body. We're not as strong by ourselves as we are when we're together. Um, And when we're separate, we're weak. And then our ministry to the lost suffers, and we're unable to strengthen one another. We know that God's desire, like Brother Roberts was saying earlier, our mission is to create an atmosphere where people can have experience with God and their lives can be changed. That's our mission: is to reach the lost, to bring them into the house of the Lord. But He's chosen us; we're His expression on the earth. But when we're divided, we're weak. We can't fulfill His purpose. And that's why the enemy wants to divide us. Because he doesn't want the world to be saved. He doesn't want people to be saved. It's scary to think that people may not come to God because of us. That's a huge weight. The world sees that we can't or that we won't get along. The world sees that. People in our lives that aren't believers, they see that. Romans 2.24 says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, because of you. That's heavy. Those last three words, because of you. When I read that, I was like, ouch, that is heavy. We've got to realize that it's a tactic of the enemy here. Of course, Satan does not want us to rescue the world. He doesn't want us to reach the world, but all he has to do, he knows this, is pit us against each other, a look here, a look there, oh, they didn't shake my hand today, or a look. Simply just, you know, it doesn't matter. The enemy knows he can use those teeny tiny little things if we let him. It's said that 1 Corinthians was written in response to both oral and written reports of conflict within the Corinthian church. The Corinth, it's not, it wasn't a church of new converts. This was an established church that Paul was writing a letter to. And he raises the issue of division as being one of the main issues. In chapter 3, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual people, but as unto carnal, your worldly people, dominated by human nature, even as unto babes in Christ, your mere infants. I have fed you with milk, not with meat, for you were not able to receive it, neither yet now are ye able. For you are carnal, you're worldly, you're controlled by ordinary impulses and sinful capacity. For whereas there is among you jealousy and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? You're unspiritual and you're walking as men unchanged. That when I read that the other day, I was like, wow, Paul, that's really hurtful. Like, why would you call us a bunch of babies? Like, that's really that's hurtful. But he's saying here that the division was evidence of their carnality. He's shining the light here on the deeper issue. You know, there, how you may know that your actions sometimes have a deeper issue? And it's because they were carnal. Last Sunday, Brother Roberts made a comment that. Honestly hit pretty hard, and I will never forget it. He said, so many are committed to church, but not committed to spiritual things. And I can relate with that. There have been times that I've been committed to the church. I've been here every time the doors are open, but my personal prayer time is lacking. You know, my Bible reading is lacking. You know, and so um, that's what Paul was identifying here. And because of their carnality, there were some pretty bad attitudes. Have you ever had a bad attitude? I've had a bad attitude, you know, sometimes every day. (laughs) So (laughs) their bad attitudes, though, is what was leading to division. He points out three bad attitudes in that portion of Scripture. Number one, he says jealousy. He writes in verse 3, for since there is jealousy, you are worldly. So to be jealous means to be hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. First of all, we need to realize and we need to settle in our minds and our hearts today that we are not in competition with each other. We're not each other's rivals. We are, in fact, on the same team, and we are working towards the same goal. You are not my enemy. Look to someone who's not in your family, And tell them, you are not my enemy. It's tempting sometimes to compare ourselves with others. When we hear about the blessings that they have, we start to thinking, when is that going to happen to me? You know, the testimonies that have been coming forth from the tithers declaration have been incredible. But our human nature can That jealousy can tend to rise up. Well, God, I've been declaring the tithers' declaration for a year now, and nothing's happened for me. Like, why not me, God? Joyce Meyer, a popular author and Christian uh, speaker, she writes, we should bless others and not be afraid that they will get ahead of us. It's not a competition. We must not envy anyone else's appearance, possessions, education, social standing, marital status their gifts and talents job or anything else because listen to this that will only hinder our own blessing when we are thankful for others and we don't we're not jealous we're opening ourselves to those blessings the second thing paul writes about is boasting in verse 21 he says so then no more boasting about human leaders To boast means to praise yourself extravagantly or to have excessive pride in oneself. Boasting is the temptation to compare ourselves with others and think that, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. And now I'm going to tell everyone about it. I want everyone to know how successful I am. That's boasting. That's pride. First of all, Paul points out in this chapter, Paul was kind of savage, y'all. He really was. He did not hold back. But he points out who we are. He reminds us. Verse 4, he says, you're mere human beings. Bishop Staten says, pinch that stuff, it's flesh. We're mere human beings. Verse 5, Paul reminds us that we are only servants. I'm just a servant. Verse 7, he says, you're neither the one who plants, I'm sorry, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. We plant, we water, but the harvest is left to God. It's not, we're not anything. We are just the servants. So there's really no reason to boast because we're really in the big picture of life. We will return to dust. The third thing he talks about is quarreling. Paul writes in verse 4 that they're quarreling was another reason that he saw them as unspiritual. So quarrel, what does that exactly mean? It's not really a word that we say in 2020. Well, it means to find fault, to contend or dispute activity, or to give a verbal complaint. How many can think of a time when you are a self-designated fault finder? <laughs> I mean, I'm being honest this morning. Has... Someone ever, you know, not really done something to meet your standards? Yeah, of course. What about disputing an activity? Has there ever been something planned in the church or a decision made that you really didn't agree with and you thought it was a great idea? I'm going to make that verbal complaint. (laughs) We must avoid quarreling. It's our human nature, but we've got to recognize it. We've got to avoid it. Just don't do it. Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, it is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. I don't want to be a fool. I want to be a peacemaker. All of these things, jealousy, boasting, quarreling, it really comes from an inflated view of my own importance. It's unspiritual. They're common in the world. These attitudes are common in the world, but it should not be in the church. So we've got to realize our utter dependence on God. Jesus even himself knew that unity among Christians would be important. So much that one of his last prayers in the garden, he took time to pray about it. John 17, 11 says, I am no longer in the world, yet they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. The Lord himself prayed that we would be saved, that we would be preserved, and that we would be unified. So why is it important that we are unified? What does it matter? In the big picture, what does it matter? Well, the Bible tells us in Psalms 133.1 that it's in unity that he commands blessing. Verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. It went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there, where there was blessing, where there was unity, the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I want to look forward in the New Testament. Where another group of people were unified in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. It sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When we the people are together in unity. When we are in one mind and in one accord, that precious ointment, the Holy Ghost, begins to be poured out. That's the importance of unity, because when we're not in unity, we're stifling, we're stopping the presence of God from being able to flow, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of other people, for people to be able to come into this place and receive that precious ointment, that precious oil, the Holy Ghost into their lives. It's only possible when we are unified. Hebrews 10, 25 says, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. So instead of being jealous, consider, be thoughtful of one another. Instead of boasting about ourselves, remember we can't do it all. I'm just human. I'm just flesh. I need you and I need God. Instead of quarreling, Provoke one another to good works. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Don't fault fine. Don't complain. But make a contribution. Encourage that one that's really probably trying their best. You know what? You did a great job. Is there any way that I can help you? We need each other. Challenge each other. The third place that the enemy will try to bring division is between us and our shepherd. Everyone has their own opinion of what a pastor should be. Some things that I, you know, you, someone like Google <laughs> can be a dangerous place. But Google, according to Google, to many, a pastor is the guy that stands at the pulpit once a week and delivers a message. Okay. To some, he's a counselor. They go to him because they are hurting or in need of help. Okay. Okay. Some may even see a well-known pastor as a marketing tool. They love to tell people, that's my pastor. They take pride in going to the church where he preaches. That's true. For us, anyway, we have an incredible pastor. He's a great preacher. You know, I'm proud to say, you know, Jason Staten is my pastor. Some people see pastors as the person who directs the church's vision. They also associate everything that goes right or wrong in the church with him. While those things I mentioned are true for our pastor, at least, I believe he is like that in a lot of ways. Really, scripture should be our source of wisdom and discernment when it comes to the role of a pastor in the church. God places much responsibility on the man called to lead and care for his people. I trust Pastor Satan with my soul. I really do. I mean, or I wouldn't be here. Hopefully, you all trust him with your soul as well. Jeremiah 315 says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, after the Lord's heart, after God's heart. I believe our pastor is definitely 100% a man after the heart of the Lord. He will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Again, I'm not really here today to define what a pastor is or what he is not, but I am here to warn you that the enemy desires to bring division between you and your shepherd. Acts 20, verse 28 through 29, it says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock we cannot open the door to that spirit. Not only must we be unified with our families and with each other, but we have to be in unity with our pastor. If we let the spirit of division in between us and our pastor, we will not be spared. Not only is it going to destroy us, but it's going to destroy the flock. It's going to destroy the body. It's a, it's a responsibility that we have not only for ourselves but for our brothers and our sisters when we let that spirit in it is a murdering spirit a savage wolf think about that you're a sheep but use your imagination this morning a flock of sheep and a savage wolf comes into the flock what do you think is going to happen it's going to be brutal it's going to be ugly and we cannot let that in Living Hope, you we all, you all do an incredible job of loving Pastor and Sister Staten and their family. Also, a little plug, this month is October. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. So show your appreciation and your, your love to our pastor and their family because they're incredible, especially over the last six, seven months. I'm so thankful. I've always been thankful to be a part of Living Hope and under their leadership, but even more so in 2020. They have just... Amazing. So, that's my little plug. The enemy does not want us to have a good relationship with our pastor. He really doesn't. And he will stop at nothing to drive that wedge between us. Hebrews 13, 17 says, To have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this, have confidence and submit to your leader's so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be no benefit to you. So have confidence and the evil word, submit. <laughs> and then it's going to be benefit of, beneficial to you. It's going to be beneficial to me if I have confidence and submit to those in authority. The greatest attack of the enemy, I believe, is that when we allow seeds of distrust to be sown between us and our pastor, When we allow our own personal thoughts and opinions to take precedent over what the man of God is saying to us. The word confidence here, which is obey in the King James Version, it's a very broad word. It means to be persuaded by, to trust, or to rely on. It comes to mean obey because that is what you do when you trust somebody. So we could say it's kind of a soft word for obey. It encourages a good relationship of trust. It still calls for the people to be swayed by the leaders. So be a swayable person. Be a person that's ready to learn, ready to be taught, ready to be led, not eager to kick and rebel. The word submit here occurs, this definition of submit only occurs in the New Testament once. Here. And this particular form of submit, it's U P E I K O, it is a narrower word. And it actually means to make room for by retiring from a seat or yield to or submit to. When I read that definition, retire from a seat, okay, I immediately thought of my dad. So my dad has always had a lazy boy recliner. He has always had one and he will have one till the day he dies. That <laughs> is his, you know, he loves that thing. So um, it has to rock. He's very specific about his lazy boy, okay? It has to rock. It has to have the different levels of raising the footstool where, you know, it clicks up half a little bit and then a little bit and then all the way. You know, he has to have that. It has to lay out flat because he likes to sleep in his recliner and it cannot swivel. We know this. We we made the mistake one year, a couple, one Christmases ago, we got him a recliner and it was a swivel. He took that baby back. (laughs) I mean, a week after Christmas, he was like, "Mm, I can't do the swivel. So we know this. He's very particular about his lazy boy. Since I was a little girl, I was always been taught, and some of you may relate, that when an adult enters a room and I'm sitting in a seat to get up and give them my seat, this was instilled in me by my dad and his trusty, lazy boy. He would enter a room. There could be an open couch. There could be other seats. There could even be another lazy boy. He wanted his. Because I trust and respect my father, I did it without even thinking twice. I still do. I'm 36 years old and I still do it without thinking twice. I can be sitting in his chair. and I can hear him come in the back door. I can actually, there's been times where I've seen him pull in the driveway and I automatically get my stuff and move to another seat because he's my father. I respect him. I trust him. And that's what submission is really. It's simply yielding what I want to the authority of another person. My mom has always told me, and you all have probably heard it, that a life of submission is a life of protection. When we are in unity with the pastor, there is protection. He is the voice of God. He is our covering. Just as they're, you know, sheep, if they don't yield to the shepherd, they're going to be destroyed because it's the shepherd that leads them into good pastures. It's the shepherd that leads them to water. It's the shepherd that keeps them safe from the wolves and from the enemy. But the sheep has to submit to that. The pastor As the man of God, not only does he stand between us, the people, and danger, but sometimes he stands between us and the judgment of God. In Deuteronomy 9, we read the retelling of the sin of the golden calf. In verse 25, we begin to read of Moses' intercession to God. Verse 25, he says, thus I fell down before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights as I fell down at the first. See, he had already spent 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain praying and fasting and came down. The people had been a mess, and so he had to go back and do it 40 more days. That's pretty incredible because the Lord had said he would destroy you. So I prayed unto the Lord and I said, Lord God, destroy not thy people in thine inheritance, which you have redeemed through your greatness, which you have brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Lord, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and look not unto the stubbornness of this people. Nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. Lest the land whence you brought us out say, Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, because he hated them. He hath brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, they are your inheritance, which you brought out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. The pastor, so many times, he can see things that we cannot see. He is the watchman on the wall. That's what the Bible says that he is. And the Lord tells him certain things. I know for myself personally that there have been times in my life where I had been about to make a decision that would have destroyed me. I couldn't see it. I was blinded. The enemy had blinded me. But my pastor, my shepherd, he came to me and he said, Jessica, you've got to wake up. The enemy is trying to destroy you with this decision, and it literally saved my life. I have no idea where I would be at this moment if I had chose not to trust him and to submit to him, but I'm so thankful that I did, and I'm sure there are many testimonies in this room today of times where you've listened to the pastor, where you've listened to that guidance, and it spared you. It saved you. The enemy hates this. He doesn't want us to be saved. He wants to destroy us. So, of course, he's going to try to cause division with that relationship that could, in fact, save you. The enemy doesn't want that. But we can't open the door. We've got to keep the door shut. Lock it. Put a bolt lock on it. Put a chair under the doorknob. Do not open the door. The fourth and the final place that the enemy tries to bring division is between us and God. You know, things can be a mess in our family. Things can be a mess with our brothers and sisters in the church. And things can even kind of be a mess with us and our pastor. But we may still have a relationship with God. So the enemy says, okay, if I can't get them these other ways or, you know, the final things, I want to separate them from God. We can look the very first book of the Bible to see where it first began. The fall of man was when Adam and Eve, of course, took the, of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. It's important to see here that the fruit of this tree was not all evil. It was of good and evil. Isn't that just like Satan? (laughs) He takes situations where there's a little bit of good mixed with a whole lot of evil. And this is how he deceives us. He's like, well, there's a little bit of good here. And in our humanity, we're drawn to the good and that we're deceived to see the great evil that is still there. In the church, sometimes even, we're so consumed with what the world is saying that we far too seldomly stop and think about what God is saying about something. You know, we hear all of these things, you know, friends, family, our jobs, our coworkers, the media, We hear all of these things and we never really stop. I'm guilty. I never really stop and say, God, what are you saying about this? What does your word say about this? It wasn't the tree that was wrong, really, it was of good and evil, but it was in their disobedience. God had told them, don't touch it, don't eat it. And it was in their disobedience. Sin was introduced, it destroyed man's relationship. So God drove them out of the garden. He didn't guide them gently out. He didn't tell them to go out. He drove them out because of their sin. That relationship was broken. We can see right now here a principle that is shown at the very beginning of the Bible that sin destroys relationships and it produces separation. Isaiah 59.2 it says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. Romans 1.24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. A very clear progression is shown when we look at the sin and the breaking of Adam and Eve's relationship with God. Number one, they became convinced that their way was better than God's. The second step was they became self-conscious after they did what they thought was a good idea and then they hid from God. The third thing is that they tried to justify and defend what they had done. Satan's plan is first to tempt us to sin, to make it look good, to, to say, "You know, oh, that's not bad. That's not going to kill you. That's not going to destroy you. But what he doesn't account for, I read this in a commentary and it just it was like, Okay, wow. What the enemy does not account for is that in that same separation from God, that is what, in fact, will spur us to repentance. Our spirits were created to be in relationship with God. Our spirits don't want to be separated from God. So the enemy is so stupid that he literally, he plants those sins, but then it is our sin then that drives us to God because we want that relationship to be restored. It was just like when he crucified Satan. The Bible says that if Satan had known that he was going to come be risen from the grave and all of our sins be forgiven, they would have never crucified him. But it is that that is what draws us to God. So yeah, we all have sin. We've all come short of the glory of God. But the positive is that that's what draws us to God. Satan wants to separate But God wants to reconcile, and he created that pathway to do that. In order to rebuild a relationship with God, those steps that I just spoke about, we just have to reverse them. First, we must drop every excuse and every justification. We've got to repent. Luke 13.3 says, Unless you repent, you will perish. Repentance, we all know what repentance is. It's not just saying I'm sorry, but it's admitting that we're wrong, asking for forgiveness, and then we do what's right. We turn from evil. We say, okay, that was wrong. Now I'm going to do what's right. The second step is we must drop our pride and stop hiding from God, thinking that he is unaware of what's going on in our lives. We have to pray. We know what's going on, And newsflash, God knows what's going on too. He He sees all. He knows all. He's everywhere, all the time. Prayer is simply communication between us and God. Any relationship, when there is no communication, unity is going. I mean, division is going to be the result. When you're not communicating with your friends, when you're not communicating with your family, when you're not communicating with your spouse, disunity is going to be there. So we've got to pray. Third, we must become convinced that God's way is better than ours. One of the most prevailing questions of all time, I've asked it on a daily basis, is God, what is your will? How do we know his will? By his word. You know, when someone dies, we wonder, what did they they want? Well, if they've left a will and testament, we know what they want. Jesus may not be here, like, where we can have a conversation with him, but he left us his will and testament. And so all we have to do is look to that to find out what to do. Um, I was online, I was looking at Lifeway Research, and it gave some pretty interesting statistics. Um, It was talking about social media. It says, on any given day, evangelical Christians that's us, in the United States are twice as likely to open Facebook as their Bible. Social media versus scripture. So this is the percentage of evangelicals in the U.S. who say they use the following every day. Facebook, 66% of evangelical Christians use Facebook every day. 49% of those people, it's several times a day. It's more than once. YouTube, 39%. The Bible, these are Christians. These are people who believe in God, who live for God. 32%. And that's only once a day. 32% of people who believe in God open their Bible every day. Among Christians, we obviously, the Bible is the highest authority. We look to that for everything, But only a third say they spend time reading it every day. Look to your right. Now look to your left. Only one of you open your Bible every day. In these statistics. That's just to help you. You all may read your Bibles every day. I'm sure you do. But statistically, that's what it is. One out of three people open their Bible every day. That's shocking to me. So... I don't think that it's any wonder or any surprise that so many churches are unhealthy, that there are so many things that the enemy can try to bring in when people aren't reaching for the word of God. The, this quote, it says people, Christians are gorging on social media fast food and they're skipping feasts of the Bible. That hurts because I've been there. I've 100% been there where I've gone all day long. I've checked Facebook. I've checked my likes. I've checked my comments. You know, I've checked my direct messages, but I have not cracked the word of God. I've been there. I'm not trying to convince anybody to completely give up social media. Don't get me wrong. Um, I have Facebook. I have Instagram. But I am encouraging you today to make it a point to spend at least As much time in the word of God as you do on social media. More. We need to do it more. But at least as much time. A quote says, A congregation that is more saturated in scripture than social media will lead to a more spiritually mature and less divided church. The enemy more now than ever has us surrounded Again, he's surrounding us. He's beating on the door, trying to cause division between us, our families, each other, our pastor, and with God. He's begging, really, for us to let him in. But we can't let him in. We have to keep the door closed. We cannot open the door. So just to kind of a recap, set boundaries around your family. Protect your family from the enemy. Come together with the family of God. Now more than ever, we cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need each other so we can experience that blessing and the revival that God has prophesied, God has promised to us. Have confidence in and submit to the spiritual authority in your life. It's only going to be beneficial for you. And finally, repent. Pray. And then read the word of God. And then we will be reconciled with
0: him. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without really knowing the exact path it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. So be sure to subscribe and watch us on Facebook Live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And also visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. I'm gonna wait on your cheeks I'm gonna wait on